No member elect having received a majority of the votes cast, a speaker has not been elected. Much like here in Britain, there's rarely been a quiet moment in American politics of late. As we record, the Republican Party is in a state of affairs that actually makes the Tories look like one big happy family by comparison. Kevin McCarthy has failed to secure the numbers to become House Speaker in 11 votes. I don't think we need much context to explain how outrageous that is, but 1923 was the last time it took more than one vote to settle on a Speaker. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and here to discuss what's going on for this edition of The Bunker USA is Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics. Welcome to The Bunker, Julie. Thanks. Thanks to be here. Julie, this vote in the past has really been a bit of a formality. Why haven't the Republicans just united behind McCarthy like we might have expected? Well, it's true. As you said, this is the first time in 100 years that this wasn't just decided on the first ballot. Usually Speaker of the House is pretty straightforward. Now we're going into the 12th round. That hasn't happened since uh, the early 1800s, since before the <laughs> Civil War. So we're, we're kind of walking in unusual territory here. And it's interesting with the set of Republicans now, it's not just a clear ideological split here. Um, you know, McCarthy himself uh, was very pro-Trump, very much behind that kind of side of the party. Um, and so this isn't just a simple split of Trump or non-Trump or, or right or hard right. What I do see with this group of 20 is different things driving different individuals. For some, it really is some key policy differences. For many, it's simple personal differences, just like not really liking Kevin McCarthy. And I think for most, it's just a power play, really trying to establish their own brand as the most anti-establishment, the most populist in the party and uh, in Congress. Trump has seemed to be a kingmaker for the GOP for a long time now. So what's confusing me is you know, Matt Gates has voted for Trump to be speaker, but Trump has backed Kevin McCarthy to be speaker. So if Matt Gates likes Trump that much, why wouldn't he want to do what Trump wants? Sort of what's going on there? Yeah, this has been so interesting because Trump has had very little sway over this. I mean, he has publicly said and, and indicated to this group of 20, support Kevin McCarthy, this is the best bet. And they've just kind of shrugged and ignored him, even though most of them are pretty big Trump supporters themselves. And I think there's two ways of looking at this. One is you know, Trump's grip on the party, I would say, has loosened. I think he's still very much a player, but it has loosened, which means others are kind of looking for ways to assert their independence. But the other way, and perhaps the more pessimistic way of thinking about this, is that you know, the MAGA world is almost a given right now in the Republican Party. And so the split right now isn't between MAGA and non-MAGA, but more trying to uh, find an inflection point within that world for people to differentiate themselves from each other. So that seems to be the reality we're working in these days. Does the GOP just feel utterly confused to you? Because I don't really see any sort of North Star for it anymore. Yeah, well, it certainly feels like a bit of um, floundering around in the dark right now. And, uh, you know, the the one thing with this vote is just that there wasn't a viable alternative to McCarthy to uh, kind of hold up in his place. And so I think that's why we're seeing the, the real chaos that we're seeing this week with things. I mean, this isn't the first time that we've seen this kind of, you know, infighting in the party to some degree. Republicans have turned on their own um, in the past with Boehner and Ryan kind of back uh, in the last decade and whatnot. 
But this is the first time that we've seen it with this much trust and force from the very beginning and this kind of group trying to establish this much, much leverage from the outset. Who are the alternatives to McCarthy if it's not going to be him? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, McCarthy, I think, is still trying to uh, get over the line. He is still trying to negotiate and make some concessions. There was more, you know, murmurs of that last night. And so we'll see if he can still do that. Why does he not just give up is one thing I don't understand, because one of the concessions I saw is that there would be this, uh, it would be made so that one Congress person could choose to have a vote of confidence in him at any time. And that to me sounds like he could never annoy anyone because they'd just go, all right, let's have a vote and try and get rid of you. So even if he wins at this point, that feels utterly pointless. So why does he not just quit? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And you're right that McCarthy has made some major concessions that would make him a very vulnerable speaker, even if he is eventually elected. But I will say, I mean, he has had this in his sights for many years. You know, he had kind of established himself as someone as an up and comer in the House leadership from pretty early on, has had his uh, sights set. And I think this is just something he's not going to give in on very quickly. And again, as we've said, I'm not sure that there's a really clear person who could do any better than him at this moment. His, his second-hand guy, Scalise, could possibly do it, but I think he'd have some of the same issues that McCarthy is facing right now as well. If not those two who you would expect it to kind of be, but as you say, Scalise feels strange to me because that's just Kevin McCarthy and all, but name, it looks like. Who are the other people floating around? We mentioned that Gates voted for Trump, but that's not going to happen, is it? But who could? Yeah. So um, again, I would say it's, it's still a big question mark. So the names that have been floated, Jim Jordan was nominated in some of the early rounds. Again, a Freedom Caucus founder and I think someone that McCarthy thought would get him over the line with that group and didn't. He does not really want it. And I don't think many moderates would uh, be in favor of him. Many of the group kind of gathered around um, Byron Donald's relatively new name, a congressman mm. from Florida. They were trying to kind of push into that space, but I don't think that he will take it either. So again, I would say right now, the best bet is still that McCarthy will somehow be able to squeak this out. But again, we are really in quite uncharted territory. At this point, the the person actually with the most votes, though, is the, the Democrats pick, Hakeem Jeffries. They're staying pretty strong on that. And there was that sort of video of AOC speaking to Matt Gates, which people have lip read to basically be saying that you know, the Democrats aren't going to back down on this. Is there any chance that, that that happens, that we have a GOP majority, but with a Democrat speaker? Yeah, I would say it's still very unlikely, but nothing is impossible these days. So there's different ways that that could happen. One is if this stalemate continues for so long and the House agrees to have this vote by plurality rather than majority, in which case Jeffries, at least if the vote stayed as they currently did, would, would uh, prevail with that. The other is if some current Republicans just either vote present or abstain from the vote, in which case the number kind of ticks down enough to get Jeffries over the line. So it would be very unlikely. I think Republicans who allowed that to happen would be um, personas non grata in their party for the foreseeable yeah. <laughs> future. So it's kind of a last resort. But technically, it is a possibility. Um, and again, it would be something that we've really never seen before. And so it would be up to Jeffries to kind of navigate that. Yeah. How would that even work? Because <laughs> Jeffries would be bringing stuff forward to the House, but knowing it would lose every time because the GOP still have the majority. 
Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the GOP would still be the majority party. And normally the speaker is obviously from that party, too. Um, mm. In that case, I think he would have more of a procedural role. You know, the speaker still controls the agenda. They set the calendar. But I do think he would still have control over the committee assignments, which is very mm. big. And even controlling the agenda is pretty major. I mean, as we know, Congress itself is split right now. So neither party is going to be getting much legislation through. So I don't think much policy would change. It would certainly change the tone in the House with having a split between the speaker and the majority party for sure. On options to end the stalemate there, I mean, two you gave were members of the GOP just give up or they have to change the rules to make this work. For the GOP, how does this look more widely? Because they're saying they want to be in power and then they can't even pick a speaker. Is that just completely indicative to the country of the fact that they could not rule? Yeah. So a couple of things here. One is, again, I think the most likely option is still that McCarthy is going to try and still sway this his way by offering more concessions to this group. Deferring is another option or McCarthy essentially, you know, threatening this group of 20, so to speak, to allow Democrats and moderates to join forces to, to support someone that he knows they don't want, which would be a gamble for him as well. But that would maybe force some of those who are um, voting with that group of 20 to finally come over. So there are different pathways that this could still go. But you're right, whichever way it goes, it is definitely not the way you want your party starting out no. their term in uh, <laughs> office, especially two years before a presidential election. With that said, again, I think, you know, these things obviously seem much more dramatic and bigger in the moment. Once or if this actually settles down, I do think the GOP will get onto what they will most likely do more is focus on investigations and making the Democrats look bad. But for right now, it is not a good vote of confidence for them. And it suggests that there's going to be um, really no holds barred when it comes to votes on the budget, votes on the debt ceiling, when this group and some others will just use all the power and leverage they have with that very slim majority. When they do get in order, what are they going to go at? We've spoken previously that they're going to target Biden. What sort of things are you expecting to see at the moment and what other characters could they could they pull in? Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, the, as the majority party, they can call different kinds of investigations, um, you know, look into different things that they want to. And I think that's where most of the focus is going to be. We can expect investigations into the Hunter Biden laptop um, issue and, and that whole story there, which they really hope will make Biden look bad and the whole administration We'll probably see investigations into the Afghanistan withdrawal, possibly into the situation at the southern border. And we've also heard calls for investigations into the handling of COVID and Fauci's role in particular with that. So all kinds of um, fun investigations mm. that I expect will be filling the airwaves and really just trying to give as much negative attention to the administration as possible in the lead up to 2024. Aside from that, as I said, just really trying to use what leverage they do have with key votes around the budget, around the debt ceiling to push some of their priorities, um, mainly kind of cutting government spending. And um, again, border security stuff, I think, will start coming more to the fore as well. So those are the two big things. And otherwise, just agenda setting, passing bills that they know won't make it through the Senate, but will make them look good to their constituents for 2024. Obviously, they want to use the power that they have to look good. But with these vindictive investigations, do you think there's a chance of that backfiring against the GOP because they've already shown themselves to be in a bit of a mess. And then if they look petty as well, is that not just going to reflect really badly on them when the world is in a pretty weird place at the moment and things need to be done? 
Yeah, I think it's possible. At the same time, you know, again, there's this reality that real legislation is not going to go through the Senate right now either. And so I think they will double down on what they know are popular points and issues for their base. And, you know, we've seen a lot of traction and interest among not only harder right Republicans, but even moderates and many independents on some of these issues, um, including the Hunter Biden story. And this gets a lot of traction on Fox News and some of the other conservative outlets. So my guess is that a lot of these stories will actually play very well to their base. And they almost see it as their right to do this, to kind of push back at the January 6th committee and that investigation, which they saw, which they saw as an overreach during the Democrats' time uh, in the majority. It's been two years since January 6th. How much of a shadow is that still casting over US politics? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, uh, you know, two years uh, from the day that we're recording now. And so it's um, it's striking how much that still plays a role in some ways, but also how much it doesn't in others. I think for Democrats, it's still very much on the forefront. We heard that very much from Biden leading up to the midterms, you know, really linking a lot of what's happening now to um, to what happened on January 6th and kind of the threat to democracy that, that occurred then. But most, uh, I would say about half the country, wasn't really that interested in what the January 6th committee was doing. Many have felt it's just time to kind of move on from that, not necessarily endorsing what happened, but not really wanting it to uh, to kind of shape the uh, the concerns moving forward either. So I would say depending on where you sit politically, you might still put more focus on January 6th than otherwise. But with that said, the investigations are still continuing. Of course, in Congress, the committee and the hearings are done, but the Justice Department is continuing with um, with their own prosecutions. I think over 900 people have been arrested and charged so far. And of course, the next step will be what they do about Trump. Talking of investigations in Congress, what is the deal with George Santos? And is he going to get some comeuppance for the, uh, let's be polite, the fibs he's he's told? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. George Santos. I will say he is maybe one person who is breathing a sigh of relief with the speaker stuff going on because it's taken <laughs> a little bit of the spotlight off mm. him. I, I heard on the first day he was literally being like chased around the building um, by, by journalists trying to get some information from him. Yeah, I mean, his story just gets, you know, more and more bizarre. Um, there are several now external investigations into him, I think, from Brazil relating to a perhaps past activity there, as well as from within the state of New York. So there are um, people looking into him right now externally. But interestingly, from within the Congress, he isn't facing any kind of formal repercussions as of yet. You know, McCarthy, I think, for obvious reasons, has been clinging (laughs) to every possible supporter he has. So he hasn't really pushed back on Santos hard, and uh, neither have most of the Republicans. So this is a really questionable case of what you do with someone like this, who um, he was clearly very dishonest and very different um, on a very range of things. And how is he actually going to govern in that position for two years? Are there clear cut repercussions for this? Because it seems to me quite an anomaly. I've never seen anyone do the kind of things he has done. And then I spotted the other day him cozying up a little bit to Marjorie Taylor Greene and having a chat with her and you think when there's people like her and Lauren Boeber in Congress, yeah, George Santos has said some things that were untrue, but 
they've been saying plenty of things which are questionable for a long while and they're still there. Yeah, no, it's a great question because, right, I mean, Santos's, um, you know, lies, to put it that way, are are very wide-ranging, but at the same time are, are not particularly related to politics for the most part or, like, policy positions or, um, you know, changing the national narrative on certain things, whereas mistruths from, from others in our Congress have had that very same effect. But, no, I would say you know, there's nothing... I was there's nothing in the Constitution that says like people who lie on their CV can no longer serve in Congress or something like that. So there's not really a set path to know what to do about this. Like it wasn't illegal necessarily what he did. It was just like wrong. And so kind of how do you deal with that? So I'm really not sure what the path forward is going to be with him. What I can say is I think there's going to be much more serious vetting of candidates by their oppositions in the future, by their party, as well as just by journalists, because so much of what he did was very much out in the open and just slipped by. From one misleading politician to another, we're going to have to talk a little bit more directly about Donald J. Trump. Unfortunately, we always have to talk about him, don't we? His tax returns, what do what do they show? Yeah, so, I mean, it was a real long lead up to the release of the tax returns. And uh, when they finally came out, I, I think it was a little bit anticlimactic just because since when the tax return queries started years ago versus now, we've had January 6th, we've had more, like, Mar-a-Lago, all these other things have happened in between that the tax return issue almost seems kind of quaint in comparison. Um, what they do show is some of what was somewhat expected, some questionable claims in terms of, um, you know, what he was saying his businesses made versus what they didn't, more foreign bank accounts than he had made public before, including at least one, I believe, in China after he had said that it was closed, you know, a lack of charitable giving by 2020, which some people thought was was notable and whatnot. But, but none of this is like, you know, hand in the cookie jar kind of implications, again, especially compared to the other things that are swirling around Trump. So notable that they're out there, but I don't think anything that is going to turn the tide one way or the other. And what are those other things that are swirling around? There's a probe into his handling of classified documents, and then there's a grand jury investigation in Georgia. Do you see any of those things tipping it so it's just he is truly out of the game? Or is it just going to all roll on and then, as you say, become quaint because you're on to the next thing? Yeah, you know, it's it is apparently still rolling on is the best way to say it. As you noted, right, Georgia is investigating from the last election. New York has ongoing investigations um, into the Trump organization. Um, there was uh, there's a criminal case moving on from the civil case from the fall, the Mar-a-Lago documents and, of course, January 6th itself. So all these things are swirling around Trump. I will say Trump has been very lucky slash savvy in the past about kind of evading personal culpability with many of these things, you know, um, blaming on what's happening in certain parts of the organization to other people, you know, trying to stay above the fray in different ways. And I think at least until now, he has managed to avoid having anything stuck directly to him. I don't know if that will continue, but for right now, he is still surviving. And the ironic thing with Trump is that I think a a conviction or an indictment or something like that in that regard would in some ways galvanize him even more. I mean, he he loves to portray himself as someone who is under the hunt of the deep state, as the victim of a witch hunt, of um, look, this is what the state is going to do to you. They're going to come after you. So even in the slim chance that he was actually, you know, charged, convicted with something. I think he would just try and play that politically as well. I do think that would lessen his chances politically, but he would still leverage it and many of his base would stick by him because of it. Has he politicized these processes so much that 
bodies are worried of making moves against him for fear of them being accused of being politicized? I think it's it's certainly part of the consideration, but I think a a very measured one. Um, the Justice Department, I think, has been right in a in assigning a special prosecutor to look at Trump's role in January 6th, which is obviously the most contentious and some of the most serious crimes that are being discussed around him. And I do think that was wise because it's going to be political regardless. You know, if they don't charge him with anything or, or pursue that any further, that will be seen as letting him off the hook because of who he is and whatnot. If they do proceed with charges, that's going to be seen as political for going against him for for who he is and whatnot. So either way, I mean, he is a major political figure. He's not running for president again. Any way you move this, you're, it's just going to be political either way. And so I, I think justice is wise in weighing the implications, but I don't think that their decision will rest on that. You mentioned earlier on that Trump's power has waned somewhat. Are his allies kind of dwindling? And with the situation in the Republican Party as it is, is that boosting people like Ron DeSantis, who could be the next successor to Trump potentially? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, DeSantis obviously had a great night during the midterms, is probably the uh, strongest rising star in the party right now. He's the one candidate who in head-to-head matchups with Trump seems to, to at least have a chance of coming out ahead. But I really don't think we can write Trump off just yet. He still has a lot of support. He is still polling with favorability of over 70% in most polls of Republicans. That's down from what it used to be, but it's still very high. And when we look at polls for a whole spread of candidates, Trump is consistently number one. So I think unless all other potential candidates kind of threw their weight behind DeSantis. The way the field is still splitting, Trump would still have a very strong chance. So again, that may still change, but I think it's very premature to count Trump out just yet. Is the problem that the pragmatic voices within the GOP have either left or become so isolated they don't have sway? Sort of people like Adam Kinzinger, who I don't necessarily agree with on a lot of things politically, but I think is a sound and sensible-minded person has gone. Is that the issue? There's no one there to reel everyone back in anymore. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. And we saw in this last cycle with many of the moderates or um, people who are vocally, you know, anti-Trump, either not running or being defeated uh, in in primaries and and whatnot. Um, But I think another just challenge for the GOP right now is trying to figure out how can you move on from Trump without losing that 30 to 40% of the party who still supports him very strongly. Is it possible to be a Republican that can get over the line in most districts without alienating that group? So I think the most you can, I think their calculation that the most, the most they can do is be very light touch with Trump, maybe not embrace him, but not criticize him either, because just realistically by the numbers, they know they can't um, lose that part of the party. So it's it's a gamble right now. Again, I do think we'll see a little bit more movement as people trying to assert themselves as more individuals uh, kind of in the next couple of years. But that part of the party is still very strong. On to Biden. What's in his entry for the year ahead? Yeah. So Biden, again, obviously does not have the fully United Congress anymore. So I think we'll be a bit more realistic in what he can get through in terms of legislation that'll be much more limited. We have seen him uh, already trying to propose new immigration and border security kind of reforms, kind of, I think, trying to get ahead of Republicans a bit on that, which I think is is wise. Obviously still trying to get the economy back on track. The U.S. is doing 
better than much of Europe, but still many worries about inflation, many worries about a recession. Where Biden, I think, will focus even more um, is probably on foreign policy, where he has a bit more leeway without um, Congress. Uh, And so really trying to keep on track with Ukraine, um, keep the aid going there trying to maintain uh, the administration's policies towards China um, and domestically and uh, internationally, you know, Biden's really been trying to push a strong climate agenda. So um, those are where I think he'll he'll lean into. But again, in terms of policy and legislation, it's really going to be limited right now with a split Congress. Domestically, is he going to have to hope up until 2024 that the goodwill from the things he has got passed so far carries him up to that election? Yeah, for the most part. And, you know, in some ways, the fact that he doesn't have Congress anymore gives him a little bit more leeway to be moderate, bipartisan Joe Biden than he has to be when he's trying to push through big Democratic, you know, packages and ideas. So, for example, on Wednesday, when the Speaker of the House stuff was imploding in Washington, you know, Biden was in Kentucky with Mitch McConnell, the um, Republican Senate Majority Leader, boasting a new bridge and talking about the infrastructure project. So I think we'll see him doing more of that, trying to pout and highlight some of the successes from the previous two years, but also try and underscore that, look, he's someone who was able to get things done in a bipartisan way across both sides of his own party, real tangible things for Americans. So I think we'll see him leaning into more of that while a lot of the dramas play out in Washington. Again, I think when some of these investigations start, he'll get dragged down by some of them, but he'll try and keep above the fray of those as much as possible. Julie, I'm sure we will speak again very soon because it doesn't look like anything is going to be resolved in the uh, in the near future, although I won't jinx it that it happens too quickly. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me in the bunker today. Great, thanks. Always a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me for the Bunker USA. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with music and audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork was by James Parrott. The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.